or whenever you want to tap into a superpower that will help you and everyone around you live a longer, healthier, happier life, smile. Yes, guys, it's Love and Philosophy, episode 10, the second episode of season two. Thank you so much for joining. Um, yeah, man, I want to get really stuck into today's episode. I'm going to try and talk a little bit slower because I just feel like there's a lot of things that I want to talk about. And I would like it if people, you know, just paid attention to what it is that I'm trying to say. The title of today's episode is The Soul Always Knows. And... I just feel like it's a very important episode for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think that a lot of people don't actually hear their souls or they don't believe that their souls know um, what it is that they want or what's best for them. And then number two, it's got to do with the fact that on the 1st of August, it marks one year since my business, 22 hours, has been in operations. And I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about that story. Um, but first I just want to play this clip from Mel Robbins. I like Mel Robbins. She has some great little quotables all the time, um, where she just talks about something that I had to understand in order to be sitting here talking to you today with my business about to mark its first birthday. Listen up. Most people aren't obsessed with their goals because they don't believe they're worthy of them. It's easy to dream about what you want, but in between where you are and what you want, there's a tremendous amount of stuff you got to change and do. So I'm going to take you guys to the beginning. Um, like I've said to you guys many times, you know, I'm, I'm from a place called Mtata in the Eastern Cape. Uh, and we went to boarding school just outside Port Elizabeth and Thornhill. Now, when my mom and my dad split, I was probably about nine years old. And I won't forget it. My mom used to have this gray mercedes-benz c-class at the time listen my mom was big pimping <laughs> she was out here she was stunting on people right and we used to have this car with like cream leather interior and it was just fantastic and and from my child perspective what it felt like was like we had just come home from from school because we were boarders so we used to board there and, and then we'd come back for the holidays we had just come back from the holidays and in my mind, I'm like, okay, cool. Life is going to happen. And then we're going to go back to school next year. I'm chilling, right? Hanging out with my friends, doing all the, all the things. And then out of nowhere, it's like, follow, pack your stuff. We got to go. And I'm like, wait, what, what, what do you mean? We, <laughs> where are we going? Mm, I don't understand. I've got everything I need here. Right. And I mean everything we needed and then some. Like we had everything we needed and wanted. It was fantastic. And so from my child perspective, it just felt like, yo, we gotta go. And one minute I'm living my normal life, and the next minute we're in the car, we're on the outskirts of Mtata, and all of a sudden from there we're saying goodbye to my mom's best mates, and then it's off to Cape Town. Boom, whole new life starts. And it's like, okay, this is happening. And sure as hell, it's happening. But luckily, I'm with my family and everything, and everything's cool. Fast forward many years, because I'm enjoying life, and I'm, I'm learning life in Cape Town, and, you know, making friends and all these things. And now I get to high school. In high school, grade 11, I'm probably about 16 to 17 years old at the time. 
our English teacher by the name of Mr. Wiggett. Mr. Wiggett was a fantastic English teacher. He was also our hockey coach because your boy was not about to play rugby on a cold Saturday morning. No, thank you, sir. Okay. There was no reason for me to go down to the field and get hit by like a big, big kid who had like issues at home that he wanted to work out on me. No, 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 no. So Mr. Wiggett was also our coach. And he gave us this project and he said, guys, I want you guys to create an advert for Milnerton High School. Best ad is going to go on TV. Now that I work in media, it's, the, it's crazy to me that a teacher said that and we believed him because <laughs> there's no way that the school could afford it. But I think he gave us a target that we could aim for. So I partnered with my friend Tarek and a whole bunch of other kids that I can't remember who was in our group because to me it was just me and Tarek. Tarek and I conceptualized this video, shot this video with the help of our friend Louisa actually. Louisa was part of the group because her mom drove us in her car and we filmed Milnerton as an area because we thought the best way to sell the school is to sell the area. We told ourselves, okay, we're going to put this video on the backtrack of like Still Dre or like a a, a Dr. Dre song because it was the Chronic 2001 was all we were listening to at that time. We'd literally sit in this computer room and just listen to it over and over and over again. Could rap all the words. It was amazing. And then I was responsible for editing the video. So I went over to my cousin's place who acted like as my earliest mentor. And we sat there and he showed me how to edit and we did it like through the night we edited this video because I, I tend to leave things to the last minute. Hand this video in and we were so chuffed with ourselves. We were so proud. And eventually we ended up, I don't know if we ended up winning or coming like close to winning, but we didn't care because to us, we had won. And it was at that moment I knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Fast forward, I start to learn that, you know, you can do some such things as film trailers. And I'm like, okay, that's what I want to do. Um, I think actually I might have learned that from The Holiday, the movie The Holiday. Cameron Diaz's character creates film trailers. And I was like, oh, that looks so dope. That's what I want to do. Fast forward, I go to film school. And in film school, we're learning all about film. And our teachers say, guys, we've got a project. And your project is you have to pitch an idea to us like you're an advertising company. And everyone was like... But dog, we're here at film school. I don't know if you guys understand, but film school means we're here to learn film. The great thing with that school was that they understood that not everybody was going to be successful in film and not everybody would actually like film. I remember I went up there and I don't know what I was selling or what I was pitching, but I remember using the the Nokia tune that din, 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 din. But instead I had one that was like remixed and so it was like, din, 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 you know, it had like a hip hop beat to it. And I remember finishing that pitch and I felt so alive when I was there. I was like, oh, this is amazing. And like, I could sense the entire class was just captivated by what I was saying. I went over time. They had to stop me after a while, but everybody was like, yo, follow your pitch was so good, was so good afterwards. And I've, I just felt the same way that I had felt when I was in high school doing that project with Tariq. Anyway, so I graduate from film school and now it's time to get a job. So I get a job, video editing at uh, ZA News. Did that for about a year and then I quit that job. And eventually, I'm, you know, my mentor who I'd done that project with, with Tariq, he said, hey, Volo, I just went for an interview. I don't think I'm going to take this job. I think you'd be perfect for it, though. Lo and behold, it was Expresso Show was looking for a sports producer. 
So I went and I met the guys at Expresso and they were like, yeah, so tell us about yourself. We had a, an interview for about, I think it must have been 30 minutes or so. And right there on the spot, the producer, Paul van Dierventer, said, listen, follow, I'd love to have you. When can you start? I said, is tomorrow too early? He said, not at all. I'll see you tomorrow. I said, fantastic. Did that for a few years. And I really began to understand how the sports industry worked. It was the first time actually that I'd ever interacted with Supersport. For anybody that doesn't understand, Supersport is like your pay pay TV sports broadcaster here in South Africa. And they are the biggest and the best on the African continent. Um, if you work in sports, you want to work for Supersport or you want to work with Supersport. And by the time that I quit my job at Expresso, I I went back home. I wasn't doing too great. And I just felt really like in a bad place. Um, and then I filmed something with a friend of mine. And this was before influencer marketing really took off. And we filmed this this like mini ad for Adidas. If any of you guys go and check out my Instagram at Captain Hendo, um, you'll see it's like the very, very first post. And I remember at that time, I said to my friends, guys, let's start a creative agency. We can do this. And we were all like, yeah, yeah. Tarek was one of them. And my other friend, Katlejo, was the other guy. And we were like, yeah, let's start it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And we were like, yeah, we're going to start it. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Didn't start it. Eventually, Supersport comes knocking on my door. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, Supersport, I can't believe this. And I'm like, okay, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. you got to go. you got to go. And they tell me what the job is. They tell me what my pay is going to be. And I'm like, yo, this pay is shocking, mate. Like, I'm not happy about this, but I'm unemployed. And the, and the recruiter, actually, the guy from um, HR, basically told me as much. He was like, dude, listen, you're unemployed. <laughs> you really don't have any foot to negotiate on right now. And I was like, damn. He's, like, he's, he's telling the truth. And I just said, you know what, though, but it is super sport and... That's a big deal, dude. So I was like, okay, cool. Let's take the job. Took the job, moved back to Joburg. In my first few months of being at Supersport, I was approached by a creative agency that are the leaders at what it is that they do here in South Africa. And so I was approached by these guys and they said, hey, man, we'd like, we'd love it if you could come and work for us. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Entertained them, went for an interview, told them how much I want to get paid. They were like, ah, dude, we're not going to pay you that much, but, you know, we can we can pay you certainly much more than what Supersport's paying you now. And I was like, you know what? Not a bad move. And then I said to them, but guys, I definitely want to learn the business of, of, of this, what you do, of this creative agency. And they were like, yeah, look, Volo, you'll first come in and you'll start as an editor and then you can work your way up. And as you work your way up, you know, we'll show you the ropes, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I'm like, oh, cool. They're going to teach me the business of sport. Great. Fantastic. I went home and I was chilling at home thinking about this offer. And I just, something just said to me, nope, it ain't it. And I was like, okay, thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. And I said, nah, guys, I'm not going to take the job. And I stayed at Supersport. This is a time when Supersport is trying to go more digital in terms of their videos. And so... What they're trying to do in the company, they've never done before. And so they're bringing about change. And if we know anything about change is that there's always going to be resistance to it. And boy, did I feel the resistance. <laughs> so I was coming up with all these ideas, which I thought were brilliant. And I thought I'm in the right place. And they're just getting shot down left and right. My, my manager at the time 
God bless him, Gary Taman. Gary was great. Gary would just say, Volo, go and make it, you know. But we had to report to the mothership. And sometimes the mothership would look at what we were doing and ask, who the hell approved that? What the hell are you guys doing? And so we'd have to kind of be like, oh, we tried to do this, that, that, that. And it was just very difficult. And over time, I would do some great pieces of work, you know, viral content, some stuff with international brands and like really great stuff that would make the, my peers look at me and say, Volo, bro, like you really know what it is that you're doing. You're really good at this. And I was like, nah, guys, it's not like this isn't a thing. Like, it's cool. Like, like, let's just go, let's just go. And eventually, I would keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. But the more I tried, the more resistance would come. Because we just, the company wasn't there yet. And this resistance would happen over and over and over and over and over again. And would really depleting me, was really depleting my soul. By the time COVID happened, I had been thinking about the creative agency thing ever since 2016, when we had said we wanted to start it, I, it was always in the back of my mind. It slowly just started ramping up the more frustrated I got at Supersport. I just noticed there is a limiting fear within me. And that limiting fear is, dude, who the hell are you to think you can be successful when your dad had it all, had it all, and it disappeared like that. How the hell do you think you're going to make it if your dad couldn't even make it? And he had it all. He had actually made it. And then he lost it. And I remember talking to myself during COVID and I said, dude, we really need to get over this fear. It's holding us back. And so I said, shit, okay, we need to talk to dad. And I was like, oh, because my dad and I don't really have a relationship. So I'm like, oh, we got to talk to that man. Okay, cool. I'm not, I don't hate him or anything, right? But I was just like, oh, I'm not in the mood to like have a conversation with someone that I don't really know. And part of me said, no, you don't need to talk to your dad. Go and talk to your mom. And I was like, genie, let me go talk to my mom. And then I was like, oh, Malindrish. You know, her name's Linda, but we call her Malindrish. Even my friends call her Malindrish. It's really hilarious. <laughs> She's like a 62-year-old black woman. And my white friends would be like, how's it Malindrish? And my mom's just like, I mean, okay. <laughs> it's so funny. Anyway, point being, I call up my mom and we have a four-hour conversation. But this is how the conversation starts. I go, hi, Ma. Um, from my perspective, back in 1997, this is what happened. So please just take me to that moment when we stood out, when we were by the car, standing on the outskirts of Mtata, saying goodbye to your best friends. Tell me what preceded that. Like, how did we get there? What actually happened? Mind you guys, I'm asking my mom to tell me about like the past several months before that. Like, how did we get there? My mom goes, I can bottle money. In fact, I must take you back to 1979. And I'm like, I was this. <laughs> 1979, what are we going to go do in 1979? I asked you about 1997. Don't take me back to 1979. And so my mom says, no, 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 no. I need to explain the full story of how I met your dad, blah, 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 blah. I said, okay, cool. Go, lady, explain, me, explain to me the story. So my mom then begins to explain the story about how I met my father, how she met my father, blah, 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 blah. And come the end of it all, she has explained to me how 
it came to be that my father ended up losing everything that he had had. And, you know, there were two main reasons um, from my mother's perspective. You know, my mom basically pointed out that my dad became a very successful black man in Mtata, but he didn't have very successful black men around him that he could then lean on when things were getting a little bit rocky or how to manage your finances or this, that, and the other thing. And so that then became, um, uh, to my mom's perspective, something where he lacked was a support structure like that. And the other thing that my mom, um, she didn't say this was the reason why he lost the things, but it was what I also picked up on was the fact that my father didn't lean on my mother um, during those times, during those difficult times for counsel, for, you know, maybe, you know, put one of the other shops in her name, etc. You know, just like looking at her, looking at his wife as a 50-50 partner in all of this, right? My father is, is a man back in the 80s. He's thinking, I need to do all of this by myself. So by the end of our conversation, I thanked my mom. I said, okay, cool, fantastic. Thank you so much. And I said to myself, but hold on, Volo. If those are the reasons your dad didn't make it, then I think you'll be fine. Because you would never look at your wife and think that, you know, she doesn't add value in those critical areas, you know, and she will always be somebody who you counsel, like whose counsel you, you trust. So, okay, cool. That's one. Like, I will always trust my, my wife says, and I will listen to her intently. I will always make my own decisions, but her counsel, I will take it very, very seriously. And then the second thing is, I have a great support structure. And that support structure is my family, number one, my siblings and my family. And then other than that, it's my friends. My friends have, have displayed to me time and time again that they've got my back. Boom. Limiting fear, gone. And only because I managed to change the story of my father to myself. Now, is that story necessarily the truth? Hell no. The truth, nobody knows it. But I'd need to at least go and get my father's perspective. I never did that. Because I felt like there was no need for me to do that. That my, my, my mother had given me was enough for me to change the story in my mind into being a story which I know I no longer relate to because it's not me and that I would do things differently. And so because that change had happened, I knew I could move forward and I could press on. It must have been weeks. It must have been weeks. And I was sitting in bed and I was like, nah, it's time now. We need to quit our job. And I'd spoken to my boss and everything and everyone knew I was going to quit my job. And then I eventually I pulled the trigger and I quit my job on the, on the, well, my last day was on the 31st of July or the 30th of July. I don't know which one um, in 2022. And I was like, let's go. Let's be about it. Right, guys. So that's part one of episode 10. Do make sure that you click on episode 10, part two, in order to get the rest of the story and actually the whole meaning behind what it is that I was talking about. Smile.